Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome Sally Amoroso. Sally is the Chief Partner Officer for EAB and serves an extension of the Officer of the CEO. In addition to advising university presidents, provosts, and other executive leaders on campus, Sally leads firm-wide efforts to integrate insights and expertise across EAB's myriad of capabilities in enrollment, student success, strategy, operations, to drive greater impact and more meaningful results at and for their partner institutions, uh, whether that's uh, K-12 institutions or higher ed institutions. Um, That was what I read from her bio. I will just tell you, the thing I appreciate most about my conversation with Sally is she is a thought leader in the space of education. I, you know, the, the topics we dive into, I'll just name a few right now. You know, we talk about what are some of the biggest challenges facing higher ed in the next five to 10 years? What role does online education play in the future of higher ed? What should we consider if we have a student going to higher ed, ed institution, what should we be thinking about and, and weighing right now? What does the future of higher ed student experience look like? Uh, I think a couple more are, how can K-12 educators adapt and best prepare their students to thrive in today's higher ed, as well as a future higher ed? It's full of thought-provoking comments and thoughts from Sally. She is someone who is very thoughtful, has kids of her own, so she's experienced it, as well as, um, I mean, she's advising the leaders of the top institutions across the country. She's someone with a um, just a, an immense amount of knowledge and, and thought leadership. So uh, this conversation, you know, after I had the conversation with Sally, I think I brought up about five different things to my wife about how we need to think differently, what the future of education could be like, how she should consider doing things differently in her, her work. Um, so to me, that's a good sign of a great conversation. So if you're fascinated with what the future of education could look like, particularly at the higher ed level, this is a great conversation. I would just say enjoy. Uh, thank you for being a loyal listener. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. We need all the support you can give us. Uh, we appreciate your loyal listenership and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did because it was a great one. Sally, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. Yeah. So um, first question we ask everybody is the same. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? That's a great question. So thank you for that. Um, You know, I was uh, recently hiking with my son who was 22 and he said to me, "If mom, if I had to choose one word to describe you, it would be striving, Um, striving. And and it made me think and realize that personally and and professionally, my why um, is rooted in helping others, people, and institutions to reach their potential. And above all else, that's really what gives me energy. So, so for the audience yeah. who doesn't know you well, um, you have a, a really interesting career, but um, the, the, the latter part, which you've been more focused on, you know, last yes. several years is the part we're talking about today. So just tell the audience uh, what your role is and what you focus sure. on just to set the table for us. Sure. So I serve as chief partner officer at EAB, and we are a firm that's dedicated to serving educational institutions. So K through 12 and higher ed and actually even adult learner institutions as well. Um, As chief partner officer, I'm out with our partner institutions. I work with our presidents, their executive teams, their boards in trying to advance their mission um, through strategic initiatives, I also lead um, some of our research initiatives to help them around some of the big gnarly issues that they're addressing. Yeah, when I was, uh, so, you know, you, you look at 
your bio on paper and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I think I have an idea of what she does. And then I followed some videos online. And one interesting video it was one of the shortest clips. I watched a few different hours of videos, but one 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 minute clip stuck out to me, maybe because mm-hmm. my best friend went to University of Dayton. Uh, I There was a woman got, got interviewed who said like, I went to this EAB meeting and that kind of changed my life. And my thinking was, I pictured you going into each school and helping them, which is probably what you do, but I didn't picture these connections where you get these officers from different schools together. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Because that that seems really intriguing to me. So one of the roles that we play is in connecting communities of interest. Um, And that could be roles, so bringing together provosts or bringing together presidents or bringing together um, individuals who are united around particular terrains, such as um, DEI. Um, And so I personally lead a lot of our work with presidents. And um, in fact, next week, I'll be hosting what we call our experience lab, where we look outside of higher ed for uh, inspiration uh, about bold ideas uh, and different ways to think about the challenges and opportunities ahead. So next week, we'll be partnering with IDEO and actually bringing a design thinking lens to creating more empathy around uh, a reframing of the the problems, again, problems and opportunities um, for students as they seek careers coming out of college. Wow. Yeah. One of of your uh, longer interviews, so a a guest that we have that is still, I can't get out of my mind, Farouk uh, Day, who you guys had just an awesome conversation. And so that was what got me excited to really look into you. And so um, I... When I, when I think about the insight you can give us, uh, I would say first, I'm just curious. Um, I, I watched another interview where you, you've interviewed, you know, 100 or more uh, university presidents, right, about yes. what the challenges are. I, I'm just curious from your perspective, what, what's the current state of affairs in higher education? I know that's kind of broad because you've got different types of higher ed, so I'll let you choose mm-hmm. the, the path you want to go. But sure. uh, I'm just curious what the current state of affairs are from your lens and their lens. So you mentioned that I had interviewed over 100 presidents, um, and I launched that um, at the beginning of COVID because there was such a crisis mentality, and we realized that we really needed to understand how the frontline leadership was um, thinking about uh, some of those crises. And so I started this presidential listening tour, if you will, um, and talked to 100 so presidents. Um, And then I've continued that actually since COVID started and just realized that's something that we need to be doing to stay in touch with Um, sort of keep our finger on the pulse of um, higher ed and higher ed leadership. So in terms of the current state of affairs for higher ed, and I think it's an interesting point as we are hopefully coming out of this pandemic and finally putting it in the rearview mirror, fingers crossed. Um, And as we're doing that, um, you know, some of the ever-present challenges that were with us before COVID Um, have been amplified and accelerated. So they haven't gone away. Um, We haven't been able to put as much attention to them across COVID because we were so focused on addressing the crisis, but they are ever present and again, amplified. Um, So that could be the um, demographic decline. It could be mental health challenges, which certainly were amplified across COVID. Um, It could be affordability and access issues. Um, And, you know, we've seen some major Uh, enrollment declines, particularly for populations where that is meaningful. Um, At the same time, we have intensifying competition. Um, So not just across higher ed, but also the fact that um, many potential students are looking at the job market, 
looking at the war for talent and thinking, I'm not sure that higher ed is a path for me. Um, so it's competition across higher ed, but beyond higher ed. It's also a time for great opportunity. So I think, you know, one of the themes that came out of that presidential listening tour is there's a real sense of pride about how leadership teams were able to be so agile across higher, uh, across COVID um, and to really be bold and be, to be student centric, to, um, to lead with compassion and flexibility. And yet, as we're moving out of this crisis mentality, you know, one of my worries is that I'm sensing for at least some of these institutions, this desire to go back, to not move forward, but really to go back to sort of pre-pandemic normal. And I just don't think that serves students uh, the best. Um, but I think much of that is born out of the fact that people are tired. There is tremendous fatigue. There is um, in, sort of an amplified talent churn uh, across higher ed, the great resignation, which we think of more as a great reshuffling. Um, and so, you know, one of the big questions right now is how do we continue to build on what we've learned from COVID? How do we take the lessons of agility and move that forward rather than taking a step backward? So when you think about, you know, higher education, I was telling you before we started, uh, you know, I went to SMU and loved my experience. I hope most people enjoy their college experiences. Uh, I'm curious, you know, as I think about my three young boys, you know, they're, let's see, 15 years away or, you know, 14 years away from having to make this decision. But my wife and I love our different colleges. She went to DePaul in Indiana. We love our college institutions. Uh, we love the experiences that we get there. But to your point, like I'm reading a lot of articles and we've had a few guests talk about how, you know, there's a lot of students even now thinking about going straight to uh, the job market. What... Mm -hmm. What do you think universities will look like over the next 10 years in order to continue to encourage people to choose that route versus um, you know, straight to the job market, I guess? So let me bring an optimist lens to that. Um, I think if we are able to build on the lessons um, from uh, the pandemic, what we'll see across the next 10 years is a greater diversification and differentiation of, um, of universities and colleges around the specific needs of the student populations that they serve. Um, so, you know, one of the problems of talking about higher ed as a sector is that it's really not monolithic. You right. have elite institutions, you have small liberal arts colleges, you have faith-based institutions, large flagship publics, regional comprehensives. And while they are all united around a mission to serve their students, those student needs are, can be very different. So if you have a teen parent going to college um, who is struggling to pay their bills um, and needs to make a decision each week about whether um, he or she can afford the gas or they need to put that money towards feeding their children, the needs of that student are very different than perhaps a student athlete that's really looking for a D1 experience and, and wanting to have sort of the, the full slate of on-campus rights of, and rituals of you know, becoming a, a, a full adult um, in a college campus environment. Um, my hope would be that universities and colleges really lean into deeply understanding the student populations they are meant to serve and investing in and prioritizing uh, those elements that allow them to do that, to serve them and to serve those needs in a different and kind way. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, my uh, nephew was a freshman during the pandemic and a sophomore, I guess. Uh, 
at Texas A&M when all this kind of went down and he went from, you know, Texas A&M, they, you know, he was in the core. They want to be all into their school, being around each other, you know, being a cadet there and they all went virtual. And so I'm curious, like you said, uh, there are actually some real benefits that even my nephew noticed from being in the virtual world. You know, he missed being in the community. Do you think there's going to be some sort of adaptation that way to do part virtual, part in-person in the future? So I do. And I think one of the dangers of talking about online education versus on campus is that it really isn't a binary choice, right? Ah. Um, And in fact, Paul LeBlanc at at, uh, Southern New Hampshire reminded me when I spoke to him about um, universities going online early in COVID, he reminded me that Gen Z is always online even when they're in person with you. And and I will attest to that being the parent of a 22 year old and a 20 year old, that they can sort of coexist on both planes at the same time. So it's not a binary choice. Um, And one of the things we heard from um, presidents and provosts across COVID is um, one, it was really clear that students do value um, elements of that in-person experience, right? Just the fact that they were, uh, revolting against some of the um, tuitions that were held the same when they were online versus on campus really shows that they there is some element of the on-campus experience that many students really value. Um, but two, that there were benefits, to your point. There are real benefits to online education. And I say online education, meaning not the emergency remote instruction, that we experienced in early COVID, uh, where we were just getting classes online. Um, But, you know, I hear all the time about students who are on campus in their residence halls taking online classes. And students really um, loving the ability to say, okay, I'm going to take that class online. I'm going to take this one in person. And um, where I push educators to think um, is around what online allows us to do better Uh, than in person, and what in-person instruction allows us to do that we can't do online, and to be guided by that first versus, again, thinking in this binary way. I mean, one of the things that I think may go away for good is this idea of a large lecture hall, where you have an instructor uh, instructor lecturing behind a podium with 200 students in in the classroom, right? I, I don't see the benefit that being in that classroom brings versus you know, hearing that lecture online and then actually being able to go back and re-listen to some of those parts that perhaps went by fast that you missed. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. That's one of the reasons why both my wife and I chose smaller universities was just so we didn't have many of those uh, large scale, you know, classes. I think I had two, maybe three and only one of them, you know, that, that teacher or that professor could have had 10,000 kids and captivated everybody by the way he taught, but that's usually the exception to the rule. And every university has probably one or two of those, but that still wasn't the best experience, I would say. Um, I'm thinking, you know, you, you talk about student experience and I'm putting my head in there. So before we, before we get too deep into student experience, I'm thinking about this online portion. Yes. When you're trying to create change, you said, you said flexibility earlier of like, yes. you know, that's what universities got to be thinking about. As someone who's been on the board of trustees at my college, like I, flexibility hasn't always been the thing. It's always, it's, you know, they want to be flexible, but, you know, there's some institutional expectations there that are tough to turn. 
I, I wonder how easy it is going to be for those institutions to turn when I'm telling you, I've got a bias towards uh, what my experience looks like. And I want my kids to have that. Well, then you have the university uh, administrators who have that same bias. And then you have the people you raise money from the boards that have that same bias. How, what, what are the pain points they're experiencing that are going to get them to pivot as quickly as possible? Mm. So I do think the declining demographics um, is part of that pain, um, as well as the intensified competition for students, right? That that forces uh, institutional leaders to think about um, how they can create a value proposition that's really compelling Mm. to students. But, But to your point, Dustin, these institutions are not built for change. They are not built for fast, responsive Um, innovation. And that is a challenge. Um, It is a real challenge in um, a world where things are changing very rapidly. I mean, who would have thought two years ago that most of our day would be spent on Zoom? Um, I certainly would not have. (laughs) Um, So um, one of the big uh, issues, I think, is that uh, boards and alumni um, are not always reflective of the student populations on campus today. Um, and so there may be a gap between uh, really being able to empathize and understand the needs of, of the students. And you talked about you know, alumni and boards wanting, to, um, wanting the students to have the kind of experience that they had. And certainly there is something compelling about those experiences, but they there are elements of that experience that may be less relevant to the students on campus today, right? Diversity, for example, diversity happened on campus um, across the last 20 years as the the nation diversified and yet boards are not diverse at all. Um, In fact, I think 65% of them are um, male, 70%, um, perhaps even 75% uh, white, right? So um, that gap in lived experience is going to be a real obstacle to to overcome as we're trying to make the best decisions to serve our students. Yeah, because your point, I mean, you're I'm, I'm thinking about the different campaigns that even our institution ran. They're, they're they're constantly constantly raising money for the most pressing needs of your university, and if they aren't aligned with what the students need and are demanding right then, right, because the people that are, have the money don't see it or can give the money don't see it, that's a really big gap that's going to cause some problems for some universities. And I think everything has to be on the table in terms of questioning whether it is in the best interest of the student. So, for example, the agrarian calendar that we follow, is that really in the best interest, not just of students at large, but of your students? Having four years to a degree, is that in the best interest of your students? So, as you're saying that, I guess, uh, I didn't think I would ask this question today, but... um, I'm sure just given your background, you know, the uh, you would probably never tell people what college you go to, but when you go to Harvard and then graduate from Wharton with a grad degree, like you've, you've gone places, which is really cool. Sorry to embarrass you if I did that. That's really cool. Um, I'm sure people, whether you had this job or not, would ask you, what's your advice on how do you, how do I choose the right institution for my mm-hmm. kids? Like, what are the questions you encourage people to ask themselves as they're trying to figure out the best place for their student or the students themselves are asking to figure out the best place for them? Well, that's, that's a really great question, but <laughs> it's, a, Sorry. Uh, no, it's a, a one that I think is rooted in having a diversity of options, right? So I think um, 
just starting with the kind of experience you want to have, um, large or small. Um, you chose uh, schools where you and your wife chose schools where you would have that attention um, from the faculty. Um, quite frankly, at Harvard, I did not have that faculty to student ratio that you did. Um, and um, so our experiences were probably quite different from, from that regard, right? Um, whether you're really driving for um, uh, employability as your primary uh, objective, um, that's a really big uh, consideration. Affordability, right? So some of these are not just what I want, but what can I afford? Um, and what makes sense for me? And what also are my responsibilities outside of, um, of school? Because increasingly students have responsibilities for family, for work, um, and really thinking about that holistically. Um, so it's, it's a lot of different factors. And I think um, the, the sad part is I don't think students are aware and families are not aware of the variety of options. Like, I don't think most students understand the difference between public and private, um, between a liberal arts <laughs> education versus one that is more professionally oriented. Some do, of course. But I think for, for many, they, they are sort of bewildered uh, by the different ways that universities and colleges pre present themselves. So uh, as you, I, the way you paused and answered the question is something that reminds me of what my wife does with me constantly. So she's the chief of staff of a inner city school district called Kip St. Louis and oh, both yeah. of us. So she taught in the Bronx. I taught here in St. Louis and then worked for the St. Louis public schools. And so um, that opportunity and access is something we always talk about. And I didn't even realize as I was asking the question about that miss of like, oh, that I'm asking from a question of, options. I have options, right? Yes. Um, our heart and our careers have been spent on how do we increase access and opportunity? So to, through that lens, what are some of the best practices you've seen recently of helping uh, first-gen students uh, and more diverse students understand what their options are so the, the world can be their oyster versus the one college they've seen most of their friends go to? Um. That is a wonderful question. And so thank you for that question. You know, I think um, when I think of many of the first gen um, educational leaders whom I've had the, the privilege of, um, of working with and supporting, um, often they talk about how they first even thought about post-secondary education as part of their future. Sure. Um, so I do think it has to start with partnership with the K through 12 system. Yep. Um, secondly, I think we are under leveraging community-based organizations. Uh, and so at EAB, one of our efforts um, through uh, College Greenlight, which is an offering we have that really focuses on underrepresented minorities, is harnessing the power of community-based organizations. So being in the communities where these students live is really important. Um, and then you have the affordability element of, of access. And you know, I was really impressed by Northern Arizona's announcement yesterday of their access to excellence um, effort where it's a tuition-free option for any families making 60,000 or less. Hmm. Um, and while of course there is financial aid um, available for many first-gen and underrepresented minority students, they don't think about that. They look at the list price and they think, oh my goodness, this is beyond the realm of what's possible for me. Um, and so this is really not just um, making that, um, that post-secondary um, opportunity available, but it's signaling to them that this is absolutely something that you can afford. In fact, it is free. 
Mm-hmm. Um, other uh, um, really innovative ways of uh, embracing this, Paul Quinn. Um, so an HBCU that is also a work college, yep. um, small, but really incorporating that um, understanding that many of their students need to be able to earn while they learn uh, and, and really embedding that into the experience. Um, and then I see lots of innovation in the online space um, where affordability and access is broadened because you have greater reach. Um, and in many of these cases, uh, the affordability uh, element of being able to price some of these online options in a way, perhaps through MOOC platforms like University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign's IMBA program, uh, which is not an undergrad, but uh, you know a graduate program, but they, they used a MOOC platform. It's free, stackable credentials that then lead to a full online MBA. Wow. Um, and it was priced um, very, very affordably to the point that it actually cannibalized their on-ground program and they closed that. So to have wow. the, the bravery to just cannibalize your own program to create a more affordable option, I think these are the kinds of bold moves we need to see. That's crazy. All right. So I want to pivot back just because yeah, I yes. appreciate, I went down that path because I just appreciated the pause and the way you're going to respond and how you said it hit me like a ton of bricks of how, you know, privileged my question was and where I wasn't going with that. So thank you. Um, I, I, as I said, before we started talking, I'm really passionate about the student experience um, from all angles from my time in college. And so I'm just curious when you say that you are passionate about the student experience for every student, what does that mean to you? And where do you geek out? Where do you spend a lot of time focusing and trying to help universities get better? So I think it does start with a deep empathy and understanding for the students we have. Um, Not the students that we think we have, not the students that we want, but the students that we have and that we are focused on supporting. So you mentioned that I went to Harvard as an undergrad. I, um, I am a product of a public high school system. I was the first of that high school to go to an Ivy League school. Um, It was a very blue collar neighborhood. Um, My parents were immigrants and um, we were low income. And so for me to go to Harvard uh, was probably a different experience than many of my schoolmates. Um, And so um, while I am incredibly grateful for the experience I had at Harvard and the opportunities that it opened, the experience was not crafted for someone with my background mm-hmm. um, or with the pressures that I felt as um, as a work study uh, student from the public school systems trying to make it through Harvard. Um, so starting with that deep empathy and understanding um, that you know there is a there are myriad students with um, different perspectives and desires and hopes and fears and and even cultural behaviors that they're bringing to us, and then really looking to craft the right set of academic experiences and student services that allow them to succeed. And by succeed, I don't mean just graduate, although that is hugely important as we know, um, but to, to graduate and thrive as, as employees, as uh, workers, as future citizens, right? Um, so, and as people, of course, um, and uh, recognizing that there, there are myriad and diverse needs that each student has. Um, and, you know, for, for a long time, I think our institutions felt like they knew what students needed. Um, and because we started out um, as a sector serving white affluent men, there, were, there was a very homogenous set of needs, but we're no longer at that place. And I think we need to really broaden the aperture to create the right student experiences. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I, I am very, very grateful. Uh, so I, I played basketball. And that's why I went to college at first Then realized I had zero talent. But that uh, ability to be around a really diverse team helped me understand from day one that the way I experienced my university was very different than some of my close friends. And mm-hmm. that guided kind of my rest of my experience of like, how do we make sure this is a great experience for everyone, not just for like the privileged few. And when you say that, I'm like, man, how, you know, how would you get an institution? We don't have to pick on Harvard. It could be any institution, (laughs) a top institution uh, to think that way. Cause at at some point, like even, you know, my universe could be like, well, this is our way. This is the way we do it. And you got to get on board and this is how we produce our results. Do you think all university presidents are kind of thinking this way now or shifting this way or being forced to go this route? No, I don't. I think um, more are now than pre-COVID because COVID was a time when we really did have to focus completely on student centricity and and actually on on our staff and leadership and what they need as well, but on on the student side in a, a very flexible and compassionate way. Um, and I saw just tremendous uh, efforts well above and beyond what you might expect, right? So providing Wi-Fi in the, the parking lot because of recognition that we may have gotten classes online, but our students may not have access to Wi-Fi um, or getting um, iPads and computers out to students who didn't need it. Or even in some cases, certainly in the K through 12 um, realm, having teachers Um, delivering meals because there was a recognition that for some part of the student population, the meals at school were the most important and perhaps robust meals that they were going to get that day. And so I think um, COVID did force us to really confront um, some of those student needs in a different way. Um, but I do worry about, you know, what I'll call sort of a bounce back. Um, and it's understandable because it has been exhausting. This, this crisis mentality has been exhausting and our, our faculty are exhausted. Our staff are exhausted. We've asked tremendous um, amounts of, um, of dedication effort from them these last two years. Yep. Um, but we have to continue to listen to the students and um, and continue to innovate and and move forward. So on the innovation, I again I've spent my yeah. whole career mostly focused on the pre-K-12 side of things. And so I have a different lens that I'll ask some questions about here in a second. But um, when we think I'll just speak for the whole K pre-K-12, and I know that you also work in that space some too. Uh, you know, there's always this talk about so that we got this academic preparedness for college and career readiness. And then we have these soft skills for college or career readiness. What do you think the responsibility is of higher ed institutions to help students with those soft skills or leadership skills, whatever you want to call them, right. um, soft skills, maybe employability skills, whatever you want to call them. Uh, what do you think their responsibility is? And what are some of those best practices that you've seen uh, across the country? Sure. So, you know, one of the areas that, um, that also transformed pretty significantly across COVID was the the world of work. So when you think about the future of work, I think there are lots of implications for how the world of work has changed that higher ed and K through 12 educators need to really embrace. Um, If you look at the top 15 skills um, that employers are looking for, for the first time across COVID, um, we see 
resilience and stress management among those top 15, as well as the ability to be a self-learner. And you think about the environment in which we had to learn, that makes a lot of sense. But embedded in that is also a recognition that 50% of all employees are going to need reskilling by the year 2025. So we can't think of education as um, just sort of a K through 12 and then four to six years um, of a university experience anymore. This is a lifelong process and we are going to need to continue to refresh our skills, to upskill ourselves um, across our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were talking about the soft skills and and the way we think about this at EAB is that that idea of a T-shaped student where you have these broad set of universal skills, creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, problem solving, um, and you have a deep stem of that T um, being rooted in some of the, the harder skills, that that actually carries over to the kind of employee that you need. And that we're going to continue to have to refresh that STEM because, um, you know, technological skills, that set of skills um, is out of date very quickly. So the half-life of those skills uh, continues to decline. Um, And we need to continue to refresh that T because we may need different elements of collaboration and leadership as the world of work continues to evolve. But thinking about that T-shaped student and becoming a T-shaped employee And again, I think K through 12, as well as higher ed needs to embrace the need to invest in both sets, both sets. It's both and again, uh, not just uh, an either or. As you're saying that, I mean, I almost went to a place of, wow, that's the case. Uh, Is the future of higher education, um, you know, right? You just said four to six years is how I think about it. When I think about my uh, university experience, like go kill it for four years. When you want a grad degree, go back, focus on, it's a little bit different focus when you do that, but you know, those are the the stops and then you keep it moving. It feels like my relationship becomes like every couple of years or every year I'm working with an institution versus a campus approach. I know this is probably not an epiphany for you, but as I'm listening, I was like, that's the first time I've thought of it that way. Yes. And actually it's a, a concept that we call the lifetime student, not the lifelong learner, because a lifelong learner is someone who takes it upon themselves to continue to educate themselves and, you know, edify themselves about different um, areas that are of interest to them or that they find personally um, helpful. A lifetime student implies that an institution has a relationship with you. You are a student of SMU. So if I'm SMU, I would be thinking, how do I keep Dustin engaged with us across his lifetime so that when there are those moments where he needs additional education and reskilling, that we're the first place that he comes? Right, so it's not just engaging your alumni around giving or even around mentorship, but around a lifetime of being an active student. That's fascinating. I think one of the things that I'm sure you got this advice uh, when I graduated. You know, when they talked about graduate schools, I felt like the best advice at that time was, even if you love your university, to go somewhere else possibly, and that may be why you chose where you went as well, just because different thinking, different philosophies, all of that. Um, I think that's part of what we'd have to break down a little bit because to your point, if President Turner, you know, had a program at SMU and just kept putting it out there, I would be one of the first people to sign up because I trust so many of the the decision makers. Um, But I've got to break down my own bias of, do I need to keep working with my same institution or find new ones to work with? 
Right. And so I do think that uh, one of the other attributes I, I expect to see evolving across the next <clears throat> decade in higher ed is more collaboration. Um, because not what you're implying is that not every institution is going to be the best at everything you may need across right, your lifetime, exactly. right? So I think we're going to see more collaboration, more consortia, um, perhaps even uh, course sharing, um, and um, you know, thinking about we have these academic strengths, you have those, or we have these experiential strengths, and you have those, and and bringing that together in a way that um, that is a greater set of offerings for, for each student as they need it. Well, I, I'm only smiling just because I'm thinking about, you know, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. So you got Florida State University down there. And if they ever tried to collaborate with Florida, I'm sure the world would end or SMU <laughs> and TCU. Like I, I mean, you got Harvard, yeah, all the places, right? Uh, but uh, that would be really intriguing, actually, because it's your point. Like I, every institution, um, you know, Teach for America, we recruited from lots of colleges. And so I got to learn with my wife, lots of the colleges and universities across the country. And so uh, I, every, every school finds there's something brilliant about it and there's something genius about it. And so it'd be great to get more of that out there. Well, we're already seeing that collaboration starting with um, regional privates, small regional privates, um, mostly because they recognize that from a scale standpoint, they may not be able to compete, but they have specific um, assets and strengths um, that are meaningful. And so in collaboration, again, through consortia, uh, they're able to uh, create greater efficiencies, but also um, innovate around different offerings. So maybe they actually create a different program um, that combines you know, a sustainability um, angle with, um, with social justice or with data analytics. And yeah. you have two schools that bring respective strengths that can collaborate together. Uh, for the benefit of their student. That's very cool. So you kind of answered, answered this indirectly uh, a minute ago, but I'm just curious to ask the specific question. You know, the, a lot of the folks that listen to us are, you know, teachers or school leaders or district leaders. What do they need to be thinking about? And I've asked this question of a couple of different folks that have your background. Um, what do K-12 educators need to be thinking about in terms of teaching their students to successfully transition to higher education. I know, I now know there are lots of, there are way more options than I can even think of currently, but how do we get kids first, the ability to be able to choose amongst those options versus being forced to go one way and then to thrive when they get there? What do we need to be working on for that? Sure. So on the first, in terms of choice, I think we need to start introducing this concept of not just post-secondary education, but lifetime education earlier, um, rather than thinking about this in such a segmented way. Even the idea of K through 12 as a segmented part of your educational experience, I think, deserves students. So starting to introduce that concept that you are going to need educational resources um, and you're going to need to turn to these institutions across your whole lifetime, um, that is the first. And then the second in terms of preparing students you know, from the world of work and looking at the future of work, we are no longer a, a knowledge economy. We are now a learning economy. Um, and the idea there is that um, knowledge and the accumulation of knowledge and information is not enough. It's really insufficient. And so when I think about educators and how can, they can best prepare students, it's about teaching them how to learn, which is really uncomfortable. Um, there's this concept, uh, 
by um, Queen's Technological Institute, a, a professor there who talks about the meddler in the middle. So we've, we've heard about this, the sage on the stage being sort of out of date. It's no longer about lecturing. And then the guide on the side was a little bit of a um, of this idea of experiential learning. But what we really need now is the meddler in the middle, okay. which is an educator that allows their students to sit in their discomfort and fail um, and struggle um, and come at a problem in different ways and, um, and not always give them the answer and allow them to iterate and develop the, the muscles around learning. That is actually the greatest gift. That Ooh. is the greatest gift that an educator can provide to prepare someone for higher ed, but also for the future of work and of the world. That that's something that we had a a, a really awesome conversation uh, on one of these podcasts earlier about the future of higher ed and what what was going on. And I, I felt like right now the way the system was set up, and I was guilty as anybody. I gamified the system uh, through K through twelve. I was like, I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to be able to choose a school I want to go to, and we'll be good. Yeah. But I don't remember outside of my economics and my English classes that those two teachers like challenged me so much that I wanted to learn to your point. Like they, they had it figured out of like, I just wanted to learn those subjects and like be successful for, I walked out of learning with those everyone else. I was trying to game. I got to college and I, in some areas I did it, but college got me more wanting to be a lifelong learner. I, I wonder how we break the system down so much to where I think about my oldest son, who's probably a lot like me. He's a perfectionist. He just wants to get the best grade possible. And I, I just want right. him, I'd rather him get a C and like have learned and like have passion and like, like to just, cause I think that's going to be more transferable, but a C doesn't have them, doesn't get him more options for university later. So that's the, it's the, the challenge that they're the world they're in. It's a conundrum, right? Because the, the structures reward getting the right answer more than thinking about the problem in the right way. Okay. Um, and that is the educational shift that we need to make. Um, is, you know, you might have come up with the, the wrong answer, but the way you approach the problem, how you dissected the problem, how you collaborated with your classmates in thinking through a solution, that was amazing. Right. And so how do we make the reward structures aligned to that? Um, and so I think it is beyond looking at just experiential education as, as a nice set of application exercises but really embedding it in how we assess um, whether a student has gained competency in particular areas. How have they mastered the ability to think in particular ways? That's fascinating. I, I, I'm going to joke, but I think that's the only reason I got into Teach for America was that part of the interview process was uh, reading articles and then talking with the Sallies of the world that were in my same interview pod and like everybody trying to get their decision, you know, their, their opinions out. And I just love opinions. And so I'm just sitting there like, Sally, what do you think? Wallace, what do you think? So like, so like but that was like what I loved. And I'm sure like that's what helped get high marks. But it was just, to me, I, I wasn't as smart as anybody. I thought they were all smarter than me by traditional standards. And to your point, we all have different strengths and can play different roles. So let's figure out those competencies, feel good about those competencies, start figuring out how to put it together as we advance in life, right? Absolutely. Oh, this is inspiring. I appreciate it. So can I ask you a few of our personal questions that we have before I let you go? Sure. 
All right. So uh, this season, we're, we're diving into what makes people tick. And so um, every successful leader I've met has uh, either some habits or disciplines that they use on a daily or mm. weekly basis that let them be the best version of themselves. What are your habits or is your habit? You don't have to choose one, choose many. What are the key habits or disciplines you have that help you set yourself, set yourself up for success every day? Uh, so I think that's changed across COVID. Um, and, um, you know, the Zoom world is a particular world in which <laughs> if you have to thrive in it, you, you have to figure out what makes you tick in that construct. And what I realize is I get really fatigued on Zoom. So one of the things that I do is um, to build in multiple breaks, which I never used to do in the face-to-face -face world, um, both to think, but also just to decompress because I find by, you know, meeting seven on Zoom that my mind is wandering and, and I'm not bringing my best self. So allowing myself and giving myself permission to step away from the Zoom room has actually been really critical to being effective just as a, a leader and a manager and, um, and being productive, um, which really was never part of my, <laughs> my, my work ethos before. How did you, how did you learn to give yourself? Cause I, I think about my wife who is such a hard worker. She has a tough time. Give it, she'll, she'll give it to her team, but she'll rarely give it to herself. And so how, how did you decide, like, if I don't step back and take this time, I'm not going to be effective. Um, I think it was just realizing I had become really irritable <laughs> and fatigued and um, just not bringing my best self to, to work, quite frankly, um, sort of six months into COVID and just having to get away. I mean, I, I think all of us were um, experiencing this Zoom world in different ways. Um, I started to hike a lot. So I hike, you know, five or six days a week. And, th and then I started to find, gosh, I'm in a better mood. And then just building in those breaks across the day, um, I found that actually I was able to get done in a half an hour what was taking me two hours to get done before because of that fatigue and because yeah. I just had no, you know, no energy to draw from. Yeah, that's great. All right, next question. Uh, what books either have you read in your lifetime or recently do you think other people who are focused on being leaders or change agents should check out? Um, so I just read Paula Blanc's student first book, uh, which is about competency-based education and, and about this idea that time is the most important currency for many students. Um, and I find him a really clear thinker, understanding that Southern New Hampshire is uh, not like all institutions, I think there's a real set of lessons there about um, the future of higher ed that I would highly recommend. That's awesome. All right. Uh, while you're hiking, you may not take your phone with you, but maybe it's driving or working out or something. Everyone I've talked to has a playlist. Actually, everyone but one. My manager, who I brought on this, she's a co-author of one of our books. I brought her on here. And I had her admit that she prefers sports talk radio because she lives in Philadelphia mm. over having a music playlist. And so she does like music, but prefers that. So you can have that answer if you want. What's on your playlist if you're driving around or working out or what kind of music you listen to? What type of artists, songs? Um, so 
um, my whole family's, um, we are big Silk Sonic fans, Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. <laughs> I just think that that album is brilliant. So that's playing uh, quite a bit. And then quite frankly, I'm a big musical theater fan as well. So grew up doing musical theater. So I still love, you know, listening to the Dear Evan Hansen soundtrack or Hamilton um, as I'm cooking dinner or, or, or driving around. That is awesome. I <laughs> So I love music. That's why we kind of threw this in here. I love, love, love music. And uh, the day after the Grammys, I think I sang that, you know, leave the door. Oh, I can't sing, but that song. And I forget the other a one. Great I was song. Say. Yeah. Uh, and so, yes. Fly uh, Like Me. Yeah. yeah. Great and song. So I kept either singing it I would put the put the song on in a Zoom. I would. It's more for like you take breaks. I have to do ridiculous stuff to like reset my mind. Um, and by the end of the day, I found out one of uh, my colleagues uh, who works in California was uh, Pac's uh, teacher. Oh my gosh! Back in the day, and I was like, "Can I meet him? Can I talk to him? Can I like?" I love that man. I love his music. Even my kids, because of his work with Trolls, uh, the movie, they, yes. they even like him. They don't really know it, but they know they know they like his songs. They don't really know who he is yet, but they love him. That's was, amazing. What a great connection. <laughs> I, was, I was not expecting that, but I, I love both of those so much. All right. Uh, last question. Someone like you is constantly around thought leaders or exposed to new ideas pretty regularly. What's a piece of leadership advice or changing agent advice that you've come across or you've read or someone's told you that you wish other people would know or just something you can't get off your brain that you want other people to know? So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about why innovation is so hard in higher ed. And uh, just from a very practical standpoint, I think we have to allow innovative ideas one, to be funded, so not just side-of-desk efforts for already overtaxed um, staff and leaders, but two, to give them the space to fail before they succeed. Um, so thinking about how you can cordon off innovative spaces and, and teams to really allow these ideas to, to stumble before they flourish, because um, if you're only counting on uh, innovative ideas to be home runs out of the gate, you're going to really miss a lot. Yeah, I think, I mean, you keep coming back to this, and I think other thought leaders have said it too. One of the best ways to grow is to fail, right? But as you yeah. said so astutely a second ago, the system is rewarded for the right answers, not the right, pro the, uh, the new ideas or the process or the attempts. And I don't know how we fix that, but that's something that, all educators who are listening, I think, should continue to dive into, um, you know, whether you're on the higher ed side or the pre-K-12 side, or to your point, we need to be on the lifetime student side, which is something that I'm walking away with today, just thinking about my own personal life, my uh, my own kids, but also as I think about our work in education and everybody's work in education is how do we shift that paradigm to embrace failure, to embrace new ideas, and to think about education as a lifetime student, not just uh, 12, 13 years here, four, six years there, and then we're kind of out. So Got Sally, it. this was refreshing. This was awesome. I appreciate you making time for us. And hopefully uh, down the road, you'll want to come back and hang out with us again. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this it. This was great. Yeah, I appreciate you so much. Have a great day. Thank you. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, 
uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential. Thank you.